Hello and welcome to Fandom Made Me, a podcast featuring activists, leaders, and writers on the pop culture that made them who they are. As always, I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and today we're doing a special 4th of July edition of the podcast with hamburger scholar George Motes. George Motes is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, writer, and photographer, and according to the New York Times, the foremost authority on hamburgers. The success of his 2004 documentary, Hamburger America, led to a book called Hamburger America, a state-by-state guide to great burger joints, as well as The Great American Burger Book, his first cookbook. You may have seen George on the Travel Channel, where he hosted the show Burgerland, or on First We Feast's new online video series, Burger Bucket List. George is also the director and creator of the Food Film Festival, a multi-sensory series of events where the audience is treated to the food they see on screen. In this episode, George and I discuss the relationship between food and pop culture, some of our favorite iconic food commercials of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and where the burger stands as an American icon. As a reminder, you can support this show and the important work that we do at Fandom Forward by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash fandomforward or by making a one-time donation at fandomforward.org slash donate. Now, on to the show. George Motes, welcome to Fandom Made Me and happy 4th of July. It's not actually the 4th of July, but it will be when this episode is released. So to our future selves, happy 4th of July. Do you have any amazing hamburger plans for the 4th? I have amazing hamburger plans every day. <laughs> do you actually eat burgers every day? No, I don't eat that. That would be silly. I can't do that every day. I switch it up with hot dogs and salads sometimes. Uh, and oysters. I like oysters a lot. Uh, but no, it's it's during the summer. We, we you know we all go a little too far, which is okay. Because then there's always you know, the, the time after the summer when you take care of yourself because the summer's over. Um, <laughs> but no question about it that um, this is the time for burgers. This is the time everyone gets out in the backyard and... They say, oh, it's, it, this, what happens is they actually smell someone else's charcoal grill and they go, ooh, I got to make burgers. <laughs> really how it happens. It's true. That's actually what I thought of the other day. I smelled a grill and I said, oh, I got to make some burgers. So, but I make them every day pretty much. I'm either talking about hamburgers or I'm eating them or something, but usually not every single day I'm eating. Well, and it's going to only be amplified in the near future, right? Because you have a new restaurant opening in Soho, which is very exciting. Yes. Very exciting. Put me in coach. I'm ready. I'm ready. Been too long, so but we're getting there. We're we're a few weeks away from uh, finishing construction, and then the details start going in the stools and the the menus and that sort of thing. Uh, and I can't wait. It's gonna be it's, it's gonna be intense. <laughs> Before we get into how you became a hamburger scholar and the preeminent American burger historian, let's talk about how you started out as a DP for WNET, which is the PBS affiliate in New York. I actually interned there once, but it was like a fake internship. It was a winter internship where you go for a week during college and, you know, you don't you don't really do anything. You just maybe do one assignment and you just watch everyone work and you're kind of in the way and then you go home and it's great. So we've both been at WNET. I think you probably had a much more rigorous uh, career there. I think I was there for 12 years. I was on staff there. I was permalance. I spent a lot of time in the office, a lot of time outside of the Actually, I spent more time out of the office than in it because... I was one of their promo DPs, director of photography, for about 13 years. We had a good time there. We had a crew. We had a good group of people, producer, director, editor, and myself, the four of us, made up this dream team. I can say dream team because if the four of us were together, we won awards, and we did had a great time. Only three of us or two of us involved, we wouldn't win anything. <laughs> I mean, first of all, how did you get into film, and then how did that career become a hamburger scholarship career? 
Well, the short story was that when I first, when I left college, my first job out of college was working for an advertising agency. And I had a great time. I worked at McCann Erickson for a few months and I got laid off uh, right away because they lost the Coke accounts. So if you're doing the math, this is a long time ago, the 1991, I think it was. Uh, and then I ended up working on what they called the other side back then, which was the production side for many years. I worked in production for 28 years, worked at a bunch of production companies, and then I ended up becoming a union director of photography and did a lot of filming all over the world, had a great time. And at some point, I wanted to make a documentary. And my thought was, well, I could just, I, I have access to so many cameras and so much equipment and so much, you know, talented crew around me. Why don't I try to make a film? I ended up actually borrowing a camera from a friend, a very tiny little mini DV camera, and had no crew myself and went out on the road and made a, a documentary about hamburgers called Hamburger America. And I did it while I was on the road doing, you know, hospital commercials and ESPN promos. And I'd say, I'm just going to go over here and, with my camera and, and talk to these people about hamburgers. And I ended up making it. It took me about two years, but I finished a hamburger documentary. It's funny that you mentioned that you worked in advertising because that is something we're going to talk about today. The advertising of hamburgers throughout, you know, the mid to late 20th century, something that I am weirdly interested in. But before we get to that, let's talk about food and pop culture generally. You and I both share this in common. We both like to draw connections between food and pop culture. I recently wrote for Remarkist Magazine, a magazine that I blog for about fandom. I wrote a piece on food and fandom and, in particular, the power of taste in experiential storytelling. And I recently found out that you created a film festival that does basically the same thing. It's called the Food Film Fest, and it focuses on the concept of bringing people food that is, you know, you watch a film and you get to taste the food that's on the screen. And that's something that we did recently at your event at Schnippers, which was fantastic, by the way. Is this a connection that you've always made between food and burgers in particular and and pop culture? Did you have any childhood memories of, of seeing a burger in a movie or on television and wanting to try it? And then did you try making that burger? The, the reality is that I've, I've always been obsessed with food and more specifically food ways, where food comes from and how it gets there and how it's changed over the years or, the, or if it moves geographically. I've always been very, very obsessed with that. I do this thing where I get on the road uh, and no matter what, no matter where I am, I go to a supermarket and walk every single aisle in a supermarket in a foreign country, in a foreign city, just to see what people are eating. Sometimes I don't buy anything. I just w want to see what people are eating and how they're eating and if they're eating well, if they're eating poorly. You know, it's, it's you can learn a lot from a supermarket in any neighborhood, obviously. But specifically, I started the Food Film Festival yeah, many years. At this point, I think it was 15, 16 years ago, a long time ago. Uh, we had to take a break during the pandemic because we, we couldn't do what we wanted to do during the pandemic. But the idea was I, I had this film, Hamburger America, which I made, you know, when I was you know in between jobs. And it ended up becoming a little bit of a cult thing. And it ended up going on PBS for a while. It was on uh, the, the Sundance Channel for a while. I was at film festivals around the country. And I was getting lumped into these sort of food sections where there'd be like a film about donuts and a film about asparagus and my film about hamburgers. And I started thinking about it. Why, we should have our own festival that celebrates the people who make films about food, which at that point was, I mean, nobody. This, I mean, you're going back now 20 years when the, my film came out. Nobody was making food programming. Food Network was only a few years old at that point, not even. They had, they had, they were nothing. Uh, and so nobody was thinking about, you know, the, the importance of putting food on film. So we, we came up with this idea, a friend of mine and I, and we said, why don't we serve the food you see on the screen specifically while you're seeing it? So you, at that moment you say, oh, I got to have this. It's right in front of you. And it, it worked. It actually worked. Um, during the pandemic, we had to stop only because obviously this, you know, the flying and chefs getting restaurants involved was not possible at all during the pandemic. 
obviously having an audience wasn't wasn't possible. Passing food from one person to the other in an aisle was not possible at all. And then the after party was impossible as well. So what we so do every is, element is, of that was impossible. Every element was we were screwed. We couldn't there's nothing we could do. So we just shut it down. And we have not picked it up since, unfortunately, because it's it's a very complicated endeavor. It's a multi-sensory experience where you experience everything happening at the same time. The, the, the visuals, the audio, all the um, the food happening right in front of you. And then you have this added bonus of having the chefs right there with you watching the film and then meeting them at an after party and talking to them and having direct access with some amazing people who make food. It was, it was a great event, really. Well. And if we, we're going to bring it back. People keep saying to me, oh, what happened to the food? When are you going to bring it back? We're going to we're trying to do it some way, somehow soon. Right on. Have you ever heard of the film Garlic is as good as 10 Mothers? No. Oh, my God. So my husband and I, my husband is a film geek. Like he would live in the Criterion closet if he could. If that was a, the an option. Collection? Yeah, the Criterion, you know, the, the closet with all the films and people go and yeah. So there was a film he showed me a few years ago, Garlic is as Good as Ten Mothers. It was directed by Les Blank, and I believe Werner Herzog is in it. I think it came out in 1980, and it's it's actually culturally significant. It was in the Library of Congress Film Registry, and it was about the Garlic Festival in California, the one where there was the mass shooting, but many, many years ago. And it was about garlic kind of before garlic was in every kitchen in America, it was mostly relegated to like Italian kitchens where garlic was kind of a, a primary ingredient, but it's about garlic fandom. And something that the director used to recommend was in the theater, you could put a toaster oven in the back of the theater and put garlic in at a certain time. And then at, towards the end of the film, the garlic would be sort of wafting into the audience and my husband, Brian, who produces this show, he was saying, oh, I've always wanted to do garlic dinner, like host a huge garlic dinner. I believe it was Alice Waters has a garlic recipe, like a 40 cloves of garlic chicken that she makes in the film. And he wants to make that towards the end and like time it so that it, it's ready just as the film is ending. So that we were kind of doing our own version of Food Film Fest, like for that one particular film. I was just wondering about that because that is kind of the earliest example I could think of of the concept that you've you've been working. Oh, I mean, in the first few years we did it, we did the um, we showed Big Night, which is a it's oh, got I a, love that a touch of the tooch, touch of the tooch. We 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 actually made the timpano and then we serve it to the audience. So the you know the famous scene where he, he turns the thing upside down and pulls it off, and everyone's like, oh, it looks great. So that was uh, that was amazing. People were not expecting us to serve the timpano. They were expecting us to you know, eat some, some pasta. That was about it. But we actually made the timpano uh, and served wow. it to order people. So it's a very complicated thing. So what you'll find out if you're trying to do this garlic thing, it can be done. And there's different levels of multi-century. Like the the to toaster with the garlic is a great idea. We, uh, but then you have you go into how many dishes are in the film. Is how long is the film? Is the film an hour long and it's got 17 dishes? You can't serve them all. But then you also have to have a crew like we did for every. 100 people in the audience you need at least 30 crew people <laughs> so, and so i'm behind the scenes making it happen with chefs and, and people delivering food all at the the timing is is everything and so for 300 people we would have about 100 people um that's how it worked if 100 people by, backstage and 300 people in the audience that was our sort of maximum where we maxed out Amazing. And I, I think that I have a lot to learn from what the Food Film Fest has done. But ultimately, I think Garlic Dinner will be 10 people in my apartment and maybe a few crew people that can 
that can get the work done. But yeah, so let's get into burger history. What's interesting to me about burgers is how they've become central to American pop culture and everything that Americanness is. You've traveled all over the country and written about different regional styles of burgers, things that I'd never heard of. I had never heard of the Oklahoma fried onion burger before until I met you. I'm sure there are many, many more variations of burgers that have made it into the mainstream, but I just find it so interesting that with your show Burger Bucket List, you showcase these different regional styles that became mainstream, like the double cheeseburger. I'm curious to know, when did burgers really become the American thing, like the American food? Well, we think about it, when it came to America, we know that it came, the idea came from Germany. So technically, when it arrived on U.S. shores, it was an ethnic food, which is funny to think that we were talking about this the other day. No one really knows what arepas are. I mean, people, you and I probably know what they are. We know what they are, right? Yeah. Everyone knows what arepa is. You go out, you know, beyond New Jersey, who knows? They, maybe they do, maybe they don't, which is fine. But that is definitely an ethnic food that... Who knows? A hundred years ago, that could be as as popular and as American <laughs> as a hamburger. The reason that the hamburger has this very rich history as an American gastronomic item is simply because we were the ones who made it portable, which made it technically the hamburger. It's called a Hamburg because it came from Hamburg, Germany, obviously. But when it came from Germany, it was served on a plate with a knife and a fork. It was not really uh, seen as something that was portable at all. It was something you sat down and ate. But of course, as it moved to the Midwest and to state fair specifically, this ethnic food ended up becoming portable whenever I'm sure, I'm sure that somebody saw a hot dog go by and said, oh, I, we should probably <laughs> put this on bread somehow. And oh, make the it hot dog portable. was walking by. Hot dog was walking by. I mean, the, the hot dog predates the hamburger by about a decade in America. And wow. so I, I guarantee that that sort of, you know, meat on bread, portable food at a fair was probably, um, the idea probably came from the hot dog or any kind of other sandwich or anything that was going on at the time. And in fact, the beginning, it was called the Hamburg sandwich. In the very beginning, it was served on two pieces of bread. Yeah. I like that you asked me about arepas. During the pandemic, my my pandemic project was a hashtag called 100 New Recipes, and I'm still doing this. Every year, I cook 100 recipes of, of things I've never made before. Okay. Um, and so I tend to go very you know international. I've cooked things from pretty much every culture I can find. I think the newer, the better, the more interesting, the more different from things that I've had in the past, the better. Um, it also means that my spice rack and all of my cabinets are full of random ingredients that only go with like a couple of different dishes. But that's been my my big pandemic project. And that has included a few different burgers, including the Smash Burger, which has been really fun. I have a question for you then. And I thought about this the other day. I, I think about food literally every waking moment, but I'm sure you do as well. Do you ever get overwhelmed by the amount of recipes that are possible? No, because I looked this up. There are at least a million recipes. I just find it really exciting. I think that it's exciting that I could continue this project for the rest of my life and I will have made thousands of dishes and I would be really sad if if I ran out of recipes. So I'm not overwhelmed at all. I'm always looking for a new challenge. Good. As I was thinking of it as this way, you think there's what's the seven or six plots in writing? There's the whatever the there's a certain amount of plots, and everything is similar or it can be traced back to those six or seven. What are they? Six plots? I forget what they're right now. It's like the fairy tales. There's a fairy tale code. Like Cinderella exists in every culture under a different name. So so it's kind of like that. 
Um, I mean, there's a dumpling in every culture, and I will try all of them. That's what I'm getting at. So if you think about it, right, kind of blew my mind when I thought about it. In writing, sure, there are those limited number of plots, and everything is sort of connected to that. But I think in food, I I'm always amazed at how the deeper you go, there are way more than six plots. There are way more than like the like the whatever you know the nationalities are the, or the cultures that are sending these foods our way. There's way more than that, and it's that to me is a little overwhelming. I get a little overwhelmed by it, but then I dial myself back in and say, okay, to to prevent myself being overwhelmed, I'm just going to make all these things. <laughs> I get Cook's Illustrated magazine, which I love. I've always loved Cook's Illustrated magazine, and the first thing I do is I make half the recipes in the thing immediately. But in the first week, I'm I'm reading it. I'm I'm literally no pun intended devouring it, and I'm obsessed with what these people what they're talking about and the science that goes into these recipes. It blows my mind. So. I do get overwhelmed, unlike you. I don't know why you don't get overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed by the amount of recipes that do or can exist out there that I just don't know about. But then what I do to help that is I just I make the recipes and then keep moving forward. See, I just want to taste it all. Living in New York, I like to make things, but I also love to go to restaurants. And I love I love trying everything. I want to taste it all. You know, I could live 300 years. I mean, that would be really weird and, and kind of disturbing, but... I would just be going out every night or making something new every night because I want to taste it all. What can I say? I totally agree. And if I have a little issue with my family where my poor family, they are at the mercy of the stuff I make all the time, which is sometimes good, sometimes really good, not good all the time, but you know, they, but they make them crazy. I change the recipe, my personal recipes every single time. I add a little bit less of this and more of that. I change the recipe every single time. And my kids will say like, did you change it again, dad? And I'm just trying to get to that point where it's perfect. And I would say I only have, like, my personal recipes, I only have like four perfect recipes. What are the perfect recipes? Are you going to tell us? The Oklahoma fried onion burger. Figure that one out. And I remember the moment where I dialed it in and I said, don't change. This is all the same stuff. Don't ever move it. Don't change, right? You're not going to believe this one, but granola. <laughs> really? Yeah. Granola, I've nailed. I grew up eating it. My mother was very crunchy. It was wonderful. I love my mother so much. And she made granola all the time. And I make a different granola than her, but I've always been obsessed with uh, trying to get granola right. Over the pandemic, after six years, literally, of obsessing over the ingredients, I got it right. And I've never, I've not, it's science. I have pure science. I have not changed the recipe one single bit. People love it. So I, that's the other reason why I haven't changed it. Um, what else? Oh, my, I have a meatball recipe, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> it's a cross between a Swedish meatball and an Italian meatball. And it's not very, not very spicy at all. It doesn't have like or, oregano and crab in it. I'm sorry, not crab, but not oregano. Um, <laughs> Just I don't I don't want to oh complicate complicate the ball. You're gonna get canceled for saying oregano is crap. Well, I love I love oregano. I just don't like oregano on my meatballs. I'll put it in the sauce, not in the meatballs. Shouldn't be in the meatball. I'm a hamburger guy, so to me, it's I'm I'm a purist. I like hamburgers. Meatballs should be pure. It's got stuff in it, but I'm you know. Um, and the fourth one, oh, uh, you're not gonna believe this one. This is a, what we're just talking about this the other day. I have a fantastic and perfect oysters Rockefeller recipe. That I only figured out because I went down to New Orleans and I was absolutely not impressed by Horst Rockefeller at the source and at, at the, the Antoine's. I, my husband and I had dinner there after I read the ten restaurants that changed America, and I was I was pretty underwhelmed. So. Oh, it was it was so, it was so sad. I felt bad for them. It's just they. I, I'm not giving it a review here, but <laughs> let's just say that we actually walked there. They didn't have Horst Rockefeller there. We had to we had to go over across the street to um what's it called um the other one across <laughs> the street, and they had ones there just weren't that great and. I thought of myself, I know what the problem is. It's not the topping, it's the oyster. The oysters are not good. You know, they're not using the right oyster. So part of my recipe is I use oysters from the north, from you know, Nova Scotia or better, even better, like Duxbury, Massachusetts, 
somewhere on the East Coast, Northeast Coast. So one of my weirdest hobbies is watching and archiving commercials from the 1970s through the early 2000s, which is roughly when I grew up. Often I host parties at our home and once everyone has had a lot to drink, I put on vintage commercials and usually it gets a lot of laughs from people. Sometimes if they're like newer commercials, like from the 90s and 2000s, people get nostalgic and they remember like, oh, I remember that fruit roll-ups commercial or that Burger King commercial. And then if they're older, like from the 70s or 80s, we just laugh at how weird they are. I actually have a Twitter account where I archive like the funniest ones that I find. Something I've noticed is that so many of the best commercials from the 70s and 80s and and some from the 90s, but, you know, 70s and 80s were like the golden era of, of advertising on TV. So the best ones were fast food commercials, typically like McDonald's or Burger Chef, which I don't think is around anymore. That was, uh, they're out of business, yeah. Yeah. Growing up in the 70s and 80s in Long Island, did you ever get any sort of impression from these types of commercials as a kid? You know, do you remember having an affinity for any of these chains? Or I know you were like, a, you're a mom and pop shop kind of guy. And, and I respect that I'm that way, too. I'll have McDonald's like a couple times a year <laughs> when they come up with some cockamamie scheme, like the Grimace's birthday meal, you know, because I just have to try it. Or the McRib. Um, or the McRib. Um, By the way, it's not good I, anymore. They ruined it. So. <laughs> so what do you remember about those kinds of commercials? When I was a kid, my dad had an obsession with jingles and you know this whole thing about jingles that was very odd and what he would do is he would quiz us on jingles when we would drive from the the house we lived in on Long Island out to the beach a uh, good two-hour ride out there and he would quiz us on like what's what's this jingle and he'd turn the radio off and try to guess what the product was before the jingle was over I think I don't think my other siblings enjoyed the the, the game at all and I was I I loved it <laughs> so that's for the jingle game play the jingle game do it and then, of course, I went into advertising. Go figure. But he played the game all the time. So he, I, he was, it was hammered into my head all the different jingles that I can't remember any of them now. I think about it, but there were so many different jingles that he, we, we, we like listened to together on the radio. And I think, I do think it did feed into my, uh, my later advertising career. It had to have, you know, he was formative. But also, I, mean, I remember the commercials, some of the commercials were, were beyond ridiculous. My all time favorite, most ridiculous food commercial from the 70s was uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Hey, you put your chocolate in my peanut butter! You put butter. peanut butter in my chocolate! What? what? Delicious! You know, you got, you know, peanut butter in my chocolate, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. But the big question is, what the hell is this guy doing walking down the street with a tub of peanut butter, eating peanut butter on the street? I mean, what what's going on there, right? <laughs> and somebody in, the, somebody in the conference room is thinking, I've got a great idea. These two kids <laughs> are walking down the street Remember the Walkman? Remember the one with the, the, the couple meet, like the cute couple meet uh, with the Walkman on? I was born in 1993, so that's the caveat, is I am into all of this stuff, but I only see them, you know, I've seen them in passing on, on YouTube. I did not grow up with a lot of these commercials, but I have an affinity for them. So the original Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercial is a very a creepy old man on, on a, like a, I think he's like in Brooklyn, a, a steps, like a stoop in Brooklyn. And he's talking to this kid about why, you know, you've got to put chocolate in your peanut butter and whatever. It's very weird and creepy. And that's where the whole thing, I think, started. Now, I think they had to get away from creepy guy, I'm assuming. I'm sorry. <laughs> out there listening, and I'm not, I don't think you're creepy. I think your character in the commercial is a little bit creepy. But they, they started to change the advertising up. 
And one thing they did was when the Walkman was big in late 70s, I guess, late 70s, I think it was, um, these two kids, these two cute kids are walking toward each other, a guy and a girl, they bump into each other. I think his peanut, his chocolate goes into her peanut butter, which is, of course, very suggestive to begin with, and goes right into her peanut butter. But then the, the, no one asked the question, what, what's what? <laughs> What? Why are you walking down the street with a, a jug of peanut butter in the first place, dude? Eating, listening, listening to music, just eating peanut butter out of a jar. And then the creepy guy comes up between them. Like, what's going? On? It's like you have you have you have not seen this commercial. You have to try to find it. It is absolutely beyond ridiculous, but so memorable. I also have to tell you about my favorite commercial from that era. I believe it was from the late 1980s. It's one of those things that hits differently now. It, it's like the funniest, most depressing thing. It was a McDonald's commercial called The New Kid. Hey, Bill, wanna go fishing? Nope, I'm going to work. I hear there's a new kid starting today. Oh, I hope he's cute. Let's see that three bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits, one egg McMuffin, two sausage muffin with egg, and one large OJ. Are you sure you never did this before? And it's an old man who is like nine. He must have been 90 years old and he's getting dressed up and he goes into McDonald's and he is so excited for his first day of work because he oh, he like walks by his buddies. His buddies are like, hey, Tim, want to go fishing today? He's like, nope, I've got to get to work. And I'm just like, I remember that. So depressing. Like, the people that age worked because they were bored and they wanted to do something. I, I don't know why you would go work at McDonald's if you were bored in your, your golden years. Gold, spend your golden years at the Golden Arches. Nowadays, you have to be working at that age because you have no health insurance. You know, it's 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 all very dismal, but, but you know. I mean, think about it, so like like Mikey likes Mikey likes it. That was a good one. Yeah. What, wait, which, I, which one was that for? I, I, that one sounds familiar, but I don't like, know. Life Cereal. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. When you bring life home, don't tell the kids it's one of those nutritional cereals you've been trying to get them to eat. I was very relatable, you know. I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to eat it. Give it to Mikey. Mikey will eat anything. <laughs> and it's just, it's, he's just the younger kid. He's the punk kid, youngest one in the family. And the kid starts eating. He's like, he's eating it. Mikey likes it. And that's how the whole, Mikey likes it became the whole campaign for, for life, life cereal. Like a legacy celebrity or brand... The hamburger seems to have solidified its legend for better or worse. Like a hamburger is a hamburger is a hamburger. But your work, such as a segment I saw recently on the Korean burger at No One um, in New York City, shows that there's still some room for evolution. There's still some room for the hamburger to surprise us. With the diversity of options, particularly in fast casual dining, how is the burger still surprising us today? Well, we almost lost it um, for a minute there. Thanks to the big guys. Um, I say big guys. Pardon me, I didn't mean to be gender specific, but the uh, you know, you know, you know who they are. They can, they can be guys. That's feminism. They can take credit for all the bad crap. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> they basically they were destroying the burger, and they know it. Worse, by the way, they were destroying it abroad. They were actually taking this this version of the American hamburger, sending it out to other countries. And people would say, oh, I'm going to go to make burger Wendy's because that's the um, the burger that is American. People would then come to America who had had you know, had sense and they would eat at real hamburger places and say, but this is not, I had McDonald's and we would all tell them, not a, that's not a burger. That is a, that's a very poor example. It's a watered down version of what this, what this beautiful thing can be. When I started working on, I started discussing hamburgers and working on my hamburger project over 20 years ago now. Nobody was talking about the hamburger the way I was. Nobody was. In fact, I would walk into hamburger restaurants, mom and pops, and they would say to me, 
what what do you what's wrong with you? What do you why do you care so much about me? And I'm just making just making hamburgers. Some of them actually didn't even see a difference between themselves and McDonald's. All they saw is that McDonald's is making more money, but we're still making the same burger. I said, no, you're not. You have, you're you're upholding an American tradition. You have the you have the resources, and you have a primary source American gastronomic object here that is beautiful. And they would say, no, it's a hamburger. <laughs> so. It, I was one of the very, very beginning. I was one of the first people to actually talk about the hamburger in such a like a loving way. People finally, I think, took note. But even before that, though, people like Daniel Ballou put a crazy burger on his menu. Where it had something to do with again with McDonald's, where he was it was an anti-McDonald's situation. He actually put a Frenchman put a, a burger on his menu in New York City, and people went, "What the hell is he doing?" And then a few things happened where there was a um, there was a the the stock market crash, the housing housing market crash, and people started to consider the hamburger on menus as sort of like a, a poor man's steak. And the hamburger kind of took off at that point. Between Daniel Ballou and myself and a bunch of other people who were talking about hamburgers in a very positive way, it just took off. And all of a sudden, people started to really appreciate the hamburger. And even the big guys, those guys, uh, started to take note. And uh, they tried to change their ways. People were like, too late, sorry. <laughs> and off went this fast casual market that has just exploded, not just in the U.S., but around the world. People do listen to me and people who talk about burgers like me, and they, they're trying to recreate American burgers authentically, thankfully, around the world now. And they're, they're not seeing the American hamburger as something that comes from McWendy King. Amazing. I mean, I've had some pretty amazing fast casual burgers, not from the big guys all over New York City. I mean, there are so many great places to go. Um, have you ever been to Smashed? Yes. I think on the Lower East Side. My favorite burger is at a burger stand at Jacob Reese Park um, at the beach um, in the Rockaways. I saw that. It's so funny. It's I called, saw it in the offseason. I couldn't get it because it was closed already. It's called Two Dudes Burgers and Fries. And it is yeah. honestly just the best burger I've ever had. I couldn't tell you why. I just love it. It's just the perfect cheese, the perfect greasiness. Like Everything is so good. Maybe it just tastes better because I'm at the beach. I don't know, but but I love it. Oh, by the way, fries. I didn't ask you about fries. What are your what are your thoughts on fries? Like, do you think that it Go matters? Jacob Reese, this is exciting. I like. To, I'll, let me tell you why you like that burger. Without even knowing the burger, what's on it or anything, I'll tell you exactly why you like that burger. Okay. Because the, it it was a burger that you said to yourself, "Wait a minute, I can get another one right now." <laughs> Before I walk away, I should get one more. Or I'm going to come back. I'm going to remember this burger. I'm going to come back and get it again. So it's we. I call it the returner. If you have a burger that's a returner, the one that you want to return to, that's the, those are the most important burgers to me. And they're usually the pretty simple burgers and nothing complicated at all. Maybe it has one or two ingredients. Uh, I'm sorry, it has a few ingredients or one or two condiments, maybe not even, no sauce, nothing to it. Um, some of the best burgers are the simple ones that you can see yourself eating again and again and again and again. <laughs> so how does the burger represent America in our current burger era? Because you see trends like, the smash burger, the impossible burger, which, you know, is that really a burger question mark? I don't know. But, um, you know, what what is the burger now? It's funny you call, <laughs> you call the smash burger a trend. I'm just happy it's sort of returned. I think it's kind of like a, it's like a, a re, the return of, it's like the, you know, it's like the, I feel like we're talking about VH1 storytellers, you know, the, the rise, the fall and the rise again of, of, of the popular smash burger. I was doing a pop-up the other day and I heard this guy talking to a girl and he was saying, you know, oh, this is a new thing. It's like a smash burger. I was like, it's not a new thing at all. Been around. I didn't, I didn't want. To, I was sort of, you know, I was holding on to myself, going like, I can't even. I'm, I'm about to connect this guy, but I. It was very, very wise not to. 
Um, I didn't want to explain to him he was wrong to the girl he was talking to, but he, he I don't think he understood that it was that it was historically significant burger, that it's the first burger. The This method of smashing goes back to the dawn of the hamburger from the beginning. I did not even know that. See, I mean, I'm, I'm a burger novice. I I have two burger recipes that I use, a smash burger that I've tried. I don't have one of those press, you know, the, the pressy thing. See, I don't even know. Like, I'm not a burger expert, and that's why I'm talking to a burger expert. You don't need to be a burger expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just have to appreciate the history. Appreciate the yeah. history. Do all the time. Because it is the burger. It is the original burger. And the reason, simply because if a guy owned a small, you know, four stool hamburger stand, for example, in Wichita, which 1921 in Wichita would have been White Castle, and he had to move burgers quickly, the fastest way to make a burger is to take a, a portion ball of, of meat, like a meatball, and smash it with the back of the spatula thin so it cooked faster. That was it. Simply, simply put, a, thin, a thinner burger cooks faster. And then, of course, there's some science that goes into that that makes it taste great. So, this guy could actually get burgers out the, out the door much, much faster if he was smashing little balls of beef on the flat top. Amazing. Well, I, I've learned something. I stand corrected. Um, what would you say are burger trends insofar as there are trends today? There's a trend right now based on guilt, which is fine. I appreciate that. I can I understand how people market things, and I get it, which is you know impossible and beyond. It's not, it's not a great product, only be, simply because there's, there's too many ingredients trying to come to one ingredient, which is beef. Perfect example would be Impossible Beef, where it's based on guilt. They don't really care about vegetarians, to be honest. Sorry, vegetarians. What they would point out is that there's 5% of Americans, at the time I was talking to them, I think it's more like 10% now, actually claim a, a vegetarian diet. So to them, trying to, you know, trying to conquer the 10% of America is not a moneymaker. They want to actually guilt the other 90% into eating their product. Which is, that's what they're really doing. That's where the money is. The money is for people who are feel, feel guilty about it. I was talking to a market research guy uh, when I was doing an article for Men's Health a few years ago. And he pointed out that I think it was every sixth meal for most people when they eat out, like at a, at a fast food place, is a guilt meal. So the idea is you feel guilty about eating hamburgers five times. So your sixth sandwich is usually a chicken sandwich or in this case, or not until recently, it was an impossible patty instead of eating a beef burger. So again, why are we eating based on guilt? It's very sad to me, and I'd rather just have a salad. Yeah, I was going to say, so with 100 new recipes, the thing that I have noticed, not on purpose because we're omnivores, I'll eat pretty much anything. The thing that I've noticed is that I maintain a mostly vegetarian, sometimes vegan diet, and it's not really for any reason other than it's a little bit cheaper. It can be healthier at times. I like to reduce my meat consumption. But if I'm going to have a burger, I'm going to want a burger. It's like a cookie. Like sometimes you don't want to have like low fat, low sugar, everything. If you're going to eat a cookie, eat a cookie. That's the way I feel about burgers. Unless you're actually a vegan or vegetarian. I'm not trying to pass judgment on people who like impossible burgers or whatever. And I have eaten. I sometimes will use impossible meat as a replacement if I don't want to use beef. But to me, a burger is a burger is a burger. And that's it. The other day, somebody was pointing out that some of the ingredients in impossible beef are impossible to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. So the last two questions come from my colleague, Martin Miller. He's a Moats super fan. Martin is an accountant by day, but he also used to run a burger joint in New York City. I'll have to get the name from him, but he's a burger fanatic. He was so excited that I was having this conversation with you. And he has two questions. The first is, what is the best trick to tell when a burger is medium rare? Ooh, well, <laughs> I hate to say it, but uh, it's practice. <laughs> Uh, you can, I mean, there's a lot of different tricks you could use. Uh, you can poke the burger with your finger to make sure it's done. But really, honestly, it's uh, understanding the cooking method you're using 
plus the practice. You really have to practice. I mean, you'd be amazed at how many times you think, oh, that's got to be medium, medium rare. And you take a bite like, oh my God, it's cooked through. How'd that happen? And it happens to me all the time. But that's it. it usually happens to me if I've changed my method, changed my beef or whatever, changed something about the process that has allowed me to overcook it or undercook it, depending on what you're doing. One of the best ways is to really focus on what you're doing and practice a few times. I tell people also when they're cooking, especially for a party over the weekend, especially July 4th weekend, the biggest mistake you can make when you're cooking outside is to start drinking before you start cooking. It's true because all of a sudden you're like, oh, I got this. And you realize, oh, shit, I didn't bring the buns. I didn't bring the, oh, where's the cheese? You know, you're too focused on like partying and socializing. I tell people, put the drink down. I'm not a teetotaler at all. I'm a drinker. So put the drink down for the 10 minutes it takes to make magic for your family and friends. Put the drink down. Celebrate with a drink as opposed to drowning your sorrows in alcohol. <laughs> yeah, I look, I love to party. I love to have fun. When I'm in the kitchen, I'm a fascist. Like, get out of here. I need my mise en place. I need everything just so. And that is it. <laughs> so, so I get you. And Martin's second question is, what is the next fast food slash casual burger you plan on trying in New York City? Ooh, you know, it's one I have not tried yet, which is kind of shocking because um, people talk about it all, all the time, is uh, Seventh Street Burger. I have not had yet. <laughs> oh, I actually have walked by that place a few times recently and, and thought about that. I'll have to I'll have to go there. We're opening a restaurant, as you know, out in Soho, actually on the south side of the house. And so I'm actually facing the West Village. I'm also facing Seventh Street Burger. They're a block and a half away from us. So now I have to go there. They're my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Neighbors supporting neighbors. Well, George, where can we find you on social media? Motzberger, M-O-T-Z-B-U-R-G-E-R on Instagram is pretty much, that's it. Everything I do goes through there or the website, georgemotz.com. So there's those two things. All right. Well, thank you, George, for joining us on Fandom Made Me. Thanks for having me. Fandom Made Me is an independent production of Fandom Forward, engineered by Brian Carton and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Ty and Debbie Pressman, and of course to all of our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening.